This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. Yeah, so we're focusing our time in and the why behind we do things the way that we do all roots back and comes back to research and higher education theory. Our policies, how we handle conflict, why we do programming the way that we do, it's all rooted in theory. So today we wanna take you through three different theories. So we're gonna look at transition theory, we're gonna look at a concept called the W curve, and then we're gonna talk about identity development theory. So that's gonna be the first part of this time together. And then we're going to apply it. So we're gonna take a scenario, we're gonna take students, and we are going to apply this theory and give it kind of feet to what we're talking about and see what it looks like played out in a student's life. So we'll kind of take you through the application process of that. And then like Krista said, we'll have time at the end for some question and answer. So we're gonna start with what's called transition theory. So Schlossberg is a theorist and a researcher that has developed the transition theory. And this is basically the idea that there are four factors that influence how an individual copes with transition. So whether or not they cope well with transition can be linked back to these four factors. The four factors are self, situation, support, and strategy. And so a lot of this is impacted by the resources that are available for students for each of these factors and whether or not they choose to engage with those resources. So when we talk about self in terms of transition, we're looking at the personal and demographic characteristics of an individual. So someone understanding how their age, their gender, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, how those factors of who they are Understanding that will help them understand the ways in which they're coping with transition, as well as their psychological strategies for coping. So what is their personal level of resiliency? What are their values and beliefs? All of those factors help them understand who am I in the midst of transition, therefore how will I cope with this transition? And then we look at situation. So we're looking at the transition itself and we're asking several questions to that transition. So what triggered that transition? Was this predictable? Was it not? Usually if the transition, if we're talking about coming to college, it's pretty predictable. We know it's happening, we know it's coming. Uh, is it good timing? Is it bad timing? Who's in control of this transition? Does that student have control of what's going on? Do they not have control? Have they switched roles? Have they gained this new role, which they are of being a student, a college student? What roles maybe did they lose in this transition that might be impacting the ways in which they're coping? We're also looking at their previous experience with transition. So what transition have they gone through before? How have they coped with that transition? Looking at other stressed factors, so what other layers are going on in addition to this transition to college, as well as who or what is responsible for this transition. So understanding the situation itself and asking some of those foundational questions helps understand that transition. The third is support, and we're primarily looking at the social support. Peers, family, friends back home, what are their social circles? Where are they getting affirmation from? Who is helping aid them in this transition? Who's giving them some honest feedback about how they're doing and how they're coping? That's a factor in transition as well. And then finally, strategies. What are their coping responses? How are they coping with transition, with the stress, with a new environment? What are their personal strategies? 
when entering into transition. So understanding these four factors and how an individual then interacts with those factors will help us be able to determine, do they have a positive appraisal of transition or has this been a really negative experience and they have a very negative outlook of this transition? So this is the transition theory that kind of gives us a foundation to build upon when helping support students in this transition. The next theory is what we call the W curve. So this is helping us understand predictable patterns and stages a student might experience during their time at college. So this W curve was primarily introduced to study students that were going on study abroad trips as well as primarily first year students. So this has been applied widely to first year students as they transition into college. And so this is what the W curve looks like. So there's five different stages that they will experience. They could experience all five stages in the first semester of college, or all four years might be one big W curve. And so we're going to unpack each of these stages and understand what they mean and how a student experiences it. So the honeymoon stage is the first stage. This might happen before a student even gets to college. So it's this initial excitement, it's that anticipation of this new, fun, exciting thing that's gonna happen, and they ride that positivity to when they first arrive and they move into their room and they're excited and they're ready to begin this new journey. Um, and then that might wear off. This excitement, this new, fun energy might start to wear off. So this honeymoon stage might last a couple weeks it might last a couple hours. You walk out the door and they might already be out of that honeymoon stage. Uh, but regardless, people are gonna experience a different length of time for this honeymoon stage and this positive, new, exciting experience. And once they start to leave the honeymoon stage, they start to dip into what's called culture shock. So this is when the newness of college begins to wear off and some of those adjustments start to settle in. So they're adjusting to living with a roommate. They're adjusting to eating in a dining hall. They're adjusting to new classroom expectations, what's required of them with note-taking, their first tests. All these new adjustments are finally starting to take place and happen. They are beginning to feel more homesick. So some of those normal routines at home it's starting to take effect and cause them to become homesick. So it's finally time for them to get a haircut and they have no idea where to go. They don't know where to go shopping. They're starting to get sick because it's fall and everyone on campus gets sick in the fall and they don't know where to go, what doctor to see, what type of medicine to buy. So all these things that were just so normal and a given maybe at home, they're starting to realize they don't have that. And so that starts to increase some of their homesickness. And so it's this positive change of, I was so excited and happy when I got here, and now I'm experiencing this personal conflict and personal anxiety about the newness of this. So again, this could happen, they could be experiencing culture shock at the end of September. They could be experiencing it for the first time in November, December, whenever it might be. But culture shock doesn't last forever. Luckily, we know that predictable patterns say that there will be an upswing. They will come out of this homesickness, 
this lack of feeling comfortable here, that it will change. Uh, it just might change in different periods of time for different students. And so this is when they start to go into the initial adjustment. So they're overcoming culture shock. They're gaining a sense of well-being. They're starting to gain confidence in their routine. So they're starting to understand school. They're starting to understand their social circles. They know where classrooms are. They know where to go when. They understand the meal schedule. Now they're gaining confidence in some of those routines on campus. And so they're kind of regaining the sense of control, and that allows them to enter into conflict as well and handle that as, they, as it comes. So they're starting to move away from culture shock and have some more adjustment and confidence in where they're at and what they're doing. But then there's a period of relapse. So they're doing well, they're starting to go up, and then they start to maybe dip back down a little bit, and they're not doing so well again. And this usually comes after an extended period of time at home or away from campus. So this could be maybe fall break. They go home for a long weekend, and then they come back and they might relapse into mental isolation. Or this might not happen until the end of their first school year, and they go home for summer, and they have two months off where they're at home, and then they come back to school for their sophomore year, that sophomore slump, and they experience that mental isolation. So mental isolation is happening after a long break, and they're starting to have stronger feelings of homesickness, but in a very different way, because they're starting to more readily compare this new home to their old home, and they don't know where they belong anymore, a lot of their beliefs and their values and their identity is maybe being more challenged in mental isolation. So they're starting to explore and be challenged with, what do I believe? And everyone's asking me what I believe, but they're also asking me why I believe what I believe. And maybe I don't know why. And so that kind of factors into this mental isolation of grappling with who am I and what do I believe. And then they're starting to realize that maybe campus isn't as great as they thought it was. So it's the first time that maybe those rose-colored glasses are coming off where they're realizing that not every peer they meet is going to be their friend. <laughs> or that maybe not every professor is going to be gracious when they don't study for a test. Um, or maybe they're experiencing this mental isolation in December and they're realizing all the pictures they saw of Whitworth on the brochures were all in the fall when everything is beautiful and there's no snow on the ground and now they're experiencing the snow and everything is horrible. So they're starting to see all these negative things about the university that they didn't see before. That starts to appear in mental isolation. But then we do another upswing and we start to head back up and not everything is going to be horrible forever. Uh, so mental isolation might last a couple months, it might last all of sophomore slump into junior year, uh, depends on how they're transitioning. So then we go into acceptance, integration, and connectedness. So this is when students start to become much more involved on campus. They start to gain a new depth in their friendships and their relationships. Maybe now they've kind of been able to connect with a faculty member or a staff member, with, uh, which research says is a very important relationship for students to have, to find a faculty member, to find a staff member, someone to connect with that isn't a peer. So they're starting to get that connection they're starting to balance a more realistic view of the university. So they've recognized the not so pretty parts of college, but they've also started to really enjoy the good parts. And so they're balancing those and starting to understand both of those. They're becoming less dependent on their parents and life back home. And they're starting to have a real sense of acceptance and belonging where they're at. So these are five stages 
that is very common for a student to go through. And like I said, they could go through this entire W curve in the first month and just keep repeating it, or they might go through it in all four years. They might go through it and maybe go back to mental isolation a couple times when they're, when they're being challenged with their beliefs and their values. Um, but this is kind of what we see happen to especially first-year students during their experience in college and helps us to uh, support and program well for students if we see that this might be where they're heading. And then we have one more theory. So this is the theory of identity development. So while they're engaging with that W curve, they're also starting to figure out their identity and establish their own identity. And so Marsha has this theory of identity development that focuses on two key components. So you have crisis and you have commitment. So crisis is exploring. Crisis is questioning. Crisis is taking the question of why, why do I believe what I believe? What is my identity? What do I stand for? So that period of exploration and questioning is what Marsha calls crisis. And then you have commitment. So this deals a lot with the political or religious or vocational decisions a student might make and taking ownership of that, saying these are my values, these are my beliefs, and this is why I believe them and why I have these goals for myself. So that's commitment. So Marcia says that there are four statuses a student may encounter, and they're not progressive. You don't kind of go through one and then the other. They're ones that people can go in and out of. They're not permanent. But depending on healthy or unhealthy choices that you make in a status will depend on if you stay in that status or you move to another one. Uh, so they're not permanent and they're, they're not progressive, but they help us understand where a student is at and what they're experiencing. So the first is foreclosure. So this is the idea that they do not have any crisis, but they have commitment. So they're not actively exploring, they're not questioning anything, but they're very committed to the beliefs and values that they have. So usually this comes from, this is what I was taught, this is what my parents believe or authority figure believed, and I've adopted that, and therefore that's what I believe. So they've not questioned it, but they've committed themselves to it. Uh, so it's a very comfortable stage to be in, and... It's someone that follows the rules, and they might not have a lot of flexibility in their thinking while they're in this stage. However, moratorium is another stage that deals with having crisis, but not having commitment. So it's this idea that a student is actively questioning and exploring and trying to figure out, what do I believe? Who am I? I have no idea, and I'm not committing to anything. So they're actively exploring, but they're not committing to anything, and they're struggling with this idea of they're wanting to resist committing and conforming, but they're also trying to figure out who they are at the same time. So they're asking a lot of questions, but not committing to any of them. Then we have identity achievement. So this is a very secure foundation for identity because this is crisis and commitment. So this comes after a long period of crisis. So a lot of questioning, a lot of exploring to come to a place where one can say, yes, this is what I believe. This is what I want to stand for. This is my identity in this season. And therefore, I can engage with conversations about what other people believe in and what, how they have come to that ideology and that identity but I know what I believe and what I stand for. So it's a very firm foundation, and it's a place where they clearly know who they are, and they can articulate that. But then on the flip side, we have diffusion. 
And this is no crisis and no commitment. So this is somebody that doesn't want to explore. They don't want to commit to anything. They're not really engaging with complex thinking. Uh, They're not critically engaging anything. And they're okay with sitting in that. And therefore, they're easily manipulated because they don't want to commit to anything, but they also don't want to explore anything. And they're just kind of sitting there, not really doing anything about it. So Marsha said that these are four ways that students will be starting to develop their own sense of identity and start to figure out whether they believe in what they stand for. Um, And they might go in and out of certain stages and stay in some uh, processes longer than others. But this gives us an idea of kind of, okay, during if they're in this part of the W curve and they're freaking out over what they believe in, then this gives us an idea of maybe where they're at and helps us better support and connect them to appropriate resources um, or program well for them. So... Those are a lot of theories, uh, important theories that we really pull on and lean on and use to best support uh, our students and teach them. And so we now want to take kind of that theory and now apply it. And so Philip's now going to take each of these theories and walk us through a roommate pair and show us how theory applies to students. All right. So we have these theories. Like Haley said, we're going to be talking about two roommates, two students who experience these ups and downs and what that looks like for them. So let's first meet Adam. So Adam is what many would call our stereotypical Whitworth student. Uh, Maybe he comes from a small town in central Washington, uh, mostly white, very active in their local church. Family isn't rich, but well off enough to where their home is pretty comfortable. Um, is a very high-achieving student in school, was an athlete, played football. And this is what a lot of people think about when they think of that stereotypical Whitworth student. But then we have our second student, Isaiah, who was born to an immigrant family in L.A., um, is used to having very diverse, both racially, ethnically, um, uh, all around him. So people who are sorry, people who are both ethnically and racially diverse all around him. Um, No particular religious affiliation, but if pressed, might call himself agnostic, right? So these are two students who appear to be very different. They have very different backgrounds, come from different states, different systems of belief. But here's where things get interesting. In their housing applications, when they apply to Whitworth, they both said very similar things. For example, They both said that academics are very important to them. They also both said that they wanted to live in Baldwin-Jenkins. That was their first choice. And then they also said that they are a morning person or an early riser. So these are all questions we ask to try to determine whether people will be compatible as roommates. Can they actually live together? But what we need to understand is that these things, this form that they fill out, doesn't capture or encapsulate the entire wealth of experience they've had for the last 18, 19, 20 years. So these students, although they seem like great matches, actually can be very different. So these two students, Adam and Isaiah, were matched together, say, by our housing office because of the preferences that they put down in their form. So now we're going to throw this W curve back up here, and we're going to trace what it might look like for those two students who are very different, yet undergo similar patterns that we can analyze based on these theories. So let's first talk about the honeymoon stage. So for a student like Adam, 
uh, the honeymoon stage might last a little bit longer, right? Um, they're from a community in central Washington, so they kind of get what's going on, um, pretty excited as they're coming in. For Isaiah in this stage as well, they might ha he might have a very um, positive outlook of Whitworth. He thinks it's going to be a new change. They're both excited. They come to campus, meet each other. Seems like a great fit. Uh, they wave goodbye to their parents. They begin traditiation. They're super tired because they're staying up at crazy hours of the night, um, having fun, meeting people, losing their voice, getting sick because they're not taking care of themselves at first. But the point is when they first come into school, they're really excited, right? There's a lot of optimism there. Then they hit this culture shock stage. So for Adam, for our first student, uh, the honeymoon stage lasts a little longer because he kind of knows what he's getting into. Um, he's from the area. He can understand how to do basic things um, that... He, he just knows how it works. He maybe understands Pacific Northwest culture. He understands that you hang out at coffee shops all the time, um, which maybe you don't do that in every other part of the country. Um, for a student like Isaiah, though, this culture shock might hit much more quickly. It might hit in the first day, where there's a lot less racial or ethnic diversity. Um, people are eating dinner at a totally different time. Um, a lot of people here eat dinner at like 5 p.m., which maybe is not the same for Isaiah or another student. Um, but the point is here that for a student who comes from a more different culture, even if it be still in California, just a couple of states away, you might experience a much quicker culture shock from anything uh, ranging from weather to food to people, what have you. So Isaiah might experience this culture shock really, really quickly. Then we get to this initial adjustment stage. Again, it might be smaller adjustments for our first student, Adam, because from the area, he kind of knows how things work, right? Um, maybe both of them had some struggles with their roommates. They realized that they weren't actually as similar as they appeared, but they can work through that, right? Maybe uh, Adam is not super happy with the fact that Isaiah gets up really early in the morning. When they said morning person, one meant 6 a.m. and the other went 9 a.m., and that creates a lot of tension there, right? Um, maybe Adam doesn't keep the room very clean, and Isaiah is pretty, um, that's pretty important to him. So they have these very different things that it's absolutely impossible to encapsulate in one housing form, but they find are just constantly clashing. But those things are maybe not the largest issues, so they're able to make this adjustment, figure out how to live with one another. Um, they figure out some classes, maybe... Uh, they get some good grades on exams as they try to figure out how to study in school. So s things seem to be going okay, pretty well. Then they fall back, have this regression into this mental isolation mode. Maybe even really little things as roommate pairs are beginning to get on their nerves. And uh, something as simple as the volume being turned up too loud on music becomes an explosion where both roommates are fighting um, their grades are suffering because they're not getting enough sleep. They don't have a comfortable living environment because they can't stand the person they're living with. Um, they're being challenged. Maybe Adam is experiencing things and learning things that are so different from what his parents taught him for the last 18 years, coming from a small, white, Christian town in central Washington. Um, for Isaiah, maybe he's being challenged religiously. 
Um, because he's not a Christian student, he experiences a lot of this mental isolation where he feels like he's not understood. Home seems so far away and so much better than what he's going through right now. So they both kind of hit this mental isolation stage. This is also maybe the point where they decide that they just can't live with each other anymore. Um, the other person is terrible. Uh, my roommate is just unbearable. So they go to their RA and they request that they change rooms. They say, it doesn't matter who leaves, just someone has to go. So the RA in this situation, instead of saying, all right, we're going to move you, is going to say, how about instead we talk this out? We get together. So the RA talks to their RD, one of us or another resident director, and they work through a plan to have a mediation. So they bring both roommates together. They say, we're going to engage in this process of conflict. We're going to expose some of the feelings, thoughts, and actions that you both have been engaging in and with and bring those to light and then see where we go from there. So those conversations aren't easy. Um, they're difficult. But let's say our two students undergo that process. The RD, instead of just handing down a decision, is going to ask them probing questions, have them think about what it means to live with another person. What are they learning through this process? And through these probing questions, the RD is going to maybe get them to a place where they can come up with a joint solution. Um, and that is probably going to mean some sort of compromise. So maybe they're okay with someone getting up a little earlier as long as there's some allowance made for how messy the room is. But the likelihood is they're going to have to engage in that process, it's gonna be difficult, and they're probably not going to get everything they want. But if they engage in that process and it ends up going well, we can often see this uptick where they move back into this acceptance and integration place, um, where maybe they learn how to accept one another, um, they're not happy with everything, but they realize that they can actually live with this sort of thing. Their roommate is no longer absolutely unbearable. Um, they can actually live with them. They might even consider them a friend. Uh, so they're going to get back to this place where their room is more comfortable. It'll be easier for them to study. And generally, they'll just move more towards this acceptance and integration. So this is an example of what it might look like for two actual students who are very, very different, yet who experience a similar up and down in this curve. Um, and that's what we need to realize is that every student is going to go through some iteration of these challenge, um, or of these challenges because they're going through this transition that Haley talked about. Uh, a couple of things to point out here before I move on is that this example, although it is hypothetical, is rooted in reality. So this story is not uh, exaggerated or embellished. It's actually very close to what my story was coming here to Whitworth as a first-year student. My roommate and I said very similar things, like we really like sports, uh, we're early risers, academics are important, we had the same building preference. But then when we actually met each other, it was very, very different. Because when this homeschooled uh, one of six child from central Colorado met my Russian Jewish agnostic roommate from downtown San Francisco, our, our cultures just clashed immediately, right? And even though on paper we seemed like fantastic roommates, we had to go through a lot of these growing pains. Um, and we clashed in so many ways. We were gone, he was an athlete, I did competitive speaking and debating, so wasn't exactly compatible there. Um, he was into partying, I was not. And we were incredibly different. 
but we had to go through these kinds of processes, learn how to be self-advocates, learn what it meant to talk to our roommate about things that were really frustrating to us, and we had to talk to some RAs and have them work through some of our issues and help us out along the way. So uh, this is a pretty real situation. The second thing I've already talked about, but it's that no form fully captures a human being. So your student might be placed with a roommate who is vastly different than them, but that's because no housing application that they fill out is going to encapsulate the entirety of their experience. And if you think of any form that you've ever filled out, whether resume, job application, uh, medical records, whatever it is, it's not going to encapsulate the fullness of who you are. And then the third and final thing is that processing conflict is really important. So rather than just separating roommates who are uh, fighting, or maybe even residents in the same building who are having disagreements, instead of just immediately separating the two, we want students to engage in this process of conflict because that's where they experience growth. Um, that's where, as they wrestle with these tough issues, they're going to be stretched, they're going to realize things about themselves, and hopefully, they're going to learn to be better self-advocates. And that's one of the reasons why we as staff and as RAs don't simply decide every issue for students, but we engage them in a mediation process where we try to allow them to come to these conclusions on their own and become problem solvers in their own right. So in addition to this W curve and learning about these things, we also see these, uh, uh, this theory of identity development playing out here. So when you look at these four stages, you see when both students began school, Yes, they were very excited, but they didn't have a lot of strong uh, commitments related to school or crises. They weren't uh, in that moment of crisis where all their beliefs were being challenged. Um, they hadn't committed to anything in particular while here at school. Then we see that even though they went through the same kind of stage, their identity development took different paths. So Adam, at some point, say maybe had really strong beliefs and experienced a moment of crisis, maybe in that mental isolation stage, where his beliefs were really being challenged by professors. Um, and so he was just at this moment of crisis and he didn't know what to commit to because he was completely torn. But maybe Isaiah hit kind of a different stage where because everything was just so different, he wasn't really experience a, experiencing a crisis of belief, he just couldn't process anything at all. So. He didn't experience the crisis. He didn't have the commitment. And then maybe by the end, they've both, both reached a point where they can engage in some of these crises, have some of these moments, but then also understand what they need to commit to and what that's going to look like. So they're going to both move through these same stages, although maybe in different patterns or different order. All right, so that's what it might look like for those two theories to play out in real life. I'm now going to hand it off to Krista, who's going to talk a bit about what you, as family members and friends, can do in these situations. Excellent. So we've been talking a lot about what your students are experiencing, but want to acknowledge you are experiencing things right along with them. Sometimes it's hard when your student goes through all sorts of different experiences and you are far away or at some level of distance and you've been used to them coming home every night to talk through their experiences rather than maybe once a week, every other week, maybe some of you every day, depending on your relationship with your student. And you have a huge role in their identity development. 
And it may or may not be what you think it is, um, but we have two things that we are hoping you take from this, which is that, one, you have to know your student. Every student, when they come home for fall break, might be at a different point on that W curve, and we're not telling you where they're going to be. Because depending on who they are, how different their experience is here from home, how they feel about the university, will determine what they need from you. Some of them might need some challenge. So when we talked about that culture shock and maybe that mental isolation and those two dipping points, they may be telling you everything at Whitworth is horrible. It's so easy to be at home. I just miss having uh, my own room. I miss knowing I hate Sodexo food. That'll come up a lot. Um, if you have the same, you eat in the same place every day, you will be tired of it no matter what they serve. Uh, and this is when they might need a little bit of challenge. What about your university do you love? What about your experience are you appreciating? It is unlikely that you absolutely can't engage anywhere. Is it possible you need to try a new club or a new activity? Is it possible you need to go make a new friend, which in the honeymoon phase sounds fun. When you get into that low point where you're not feeling great, making a new friend is terrifying. Going to the dining hall if you don't have someone to go with is scary. And so pushing them that that might be the best bet. And if they are talking about transferring, this comes up a lot in the first six weeks. Usually a student will decide within six weeks whether or not this is the school for them. We know that. That's why we emphasize the first six weeks a lot. Challenging them on, is transferring a good idea? We're not going to pretend that every student perfectly fits at Whitworth and maybe transferring might be helpful. But getting them to be thinking really critically about why they might want to do that versus is it just because it's uncomfortable right now? And discomfort is actually good for you, and we want that for you. Your student might be in a place where they can hear challenge from you better than they can hear it from me as their RD, better than they can hear it from their roommate, um, and it will help them grow, and we want that for them. The other thing your student might need, especially if they're in that identity stage where they are questioning everything and they feel like they don't know who they are anymore. College can do that, and we want college to do that for a time. I thought I was a Christian, or I thought I was this specific type of Christian, and I didn't realize so many other types exist in the world, and now I don't know what I believe. Why did no one tell me how the Bible was created? That was my crisis when I got to college in my first year. Uh, they might... I have had different thoughts about different types of people in the world, and those are being challenged because they're actually experiencing so many different types of people. And they might need some support, and that might come in the form of not telling them to go back to who they were before they went to college. And this is really hard, and I have been a parent, but not of a child this age. <laughs> uh, I'm a foster parent, my husband and I are. And so I can't totally relate, but what I can understand is that it's hard to see a child that you've raised change and question who they are, but it's really important that the beliefs that they have become their own, and that's a really messy process. So what we would love from you all as advocates with us is to ask them good questions about what they believe, but not to overreact when they tell you a radical idea or that they've heard this thing from a professor that really challenged them because those questions and that processing, especially in their first year, is so important, and that's how they're gonna make commitments to who they are. But if they're told they can't believe these new radical ideas, or not necessarily believe, but interact with them, and explore them, and learn about them, then that stifles that process of self-exploration and identity commitments. And that's not what we want for them as a university. Um, and I imagine as parents, that's not what you want for them either. 
So those are just a couple ideas for how to be helpful in this challenging first year development of your student. And at this point, we'd actually like to open it up for questions. We've thrown a lot of things at you. Um, we have varying levels of experience. I think they're gonna come up and join me, Haley and Philip. We are in different buildings. I've been in RD in multiple states, and um, we've gone, well, those two are Whitworth grads, so they know more about this school than even I could as someone who works here. Uh, but we would love to hear any questions you might have about the first year experience, what to expect, um, anything, really. Sure. Yeah, they, know what they, are. they may not know what they are in terms of us having, sorry, the question was, uh, do students learn about the W curve at any point in their first week or so of school? And the answer is no, although I think that's a great idea, which maybe we'll incorporate in the future. We do, however, try and normalize some of those experiences that we know are coming. So we normalize for students, yes, this is so exciting that uh, camp, Referring to Whitworth as a camp that first week or two is really common. That's that honeymoon feeling. And we say, yes, it's normal to feel that way. It's also normal when all of a sudden you realize, wait, is this a good fit? Everything's different than I thought it would be. We try and normalize everything, and that's how we talk about it. Are there anything, anything else you would add to that? This might be a conversation that we would have more explicitly with the RAs and the student leaders who then maybe this comes out maybe in one-on-one -on -one conversations without explicitly using that language, but with like, hey, yeah, you might be, is this kind of what you're feeling? And being able to maybe name some of those feelings that they don't even understand that they're feeling that. And then they're like, yes, that is what I'm feeling. Like, no, that's actually not what I'm feeling. So it comes out a lot in those one-on-one -on -one conversations. But yeah, I think I, being putting this in front of students would never be a bad idea. And to what Philip shared about roommate conflict, that's a lot of what we do is roommate mediation, especially with first-year students, and asking some of these questions from a place of, I understand that sometimes it's hard when you experience this much difference or conflict, and you want the key words that students will use with us is, I need to feel safe in my room, or I need to be able to study. Um, and I have to unpack that safety, because if you actually feel unsafe, that's a whole different conversation, right? I, if you feel like you might be in harm's way, obviously we are going to do something about that right away. Safety might mean, I feel awkward. I feel uncomfortable. I don't know how to talk to them. I thought I knew them, and then they shared this view that I don't agree with, and now I don't even know what to do. And that's where I'll use some of this language as well, about what stage of development might your roommate be in? And how can you help each other in this process, even if you're at very different stages right now? Um, and education comes in those. It's hard to hear some of this until you're going through it. And then when you're going through it, you're like, oh, people actually have researched this. A lot of research has gone into roommate conflict. Uh, and, and we use that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Any other questions? even if it's not in this realm, but about residence life. <laughs> this, How yes? How often do you actually teach these people actually in that same Right. Every university is different, and I can speak to a couple, um, but typically when we're in that category of safety, we will change roommates. And that sometimes, 
especially students that come from very different backgrounds. We have a lot of students who aren't used to being in mostly white spaces, and some of the language that their roommate is using is very offensive and hurtful and makes them feel unsafe, whether or not there's any negative intention behind that language. That's a time I'm gonna entertain the roommate change, because I need that student to, if they don't feel like they can even exist in their room as who they are, they're not gonna do well in all other aspects of their life. Those are the type of situations where we would do roommate change. And after lots and lots of conflict, if they've gone through the mediation two or three times and it's just not working out, we're not gonna persist through making them miserable. That's never the goal. We're hoping that in one, maybe two different levels of mediation, they're learning about themselves and each other and can progress, but we're not gonna force them to it. If they've actually engaged with the process, we're not gonna make them stay together. Um, I often will make, in that situation, if they're okay, they're just not doing great, I might make them live it out through the semester and then at semester change, because it's just messy to do it in the middle of the year um, and affects grades and all sorts of things, so. Yeah, maybe the one other thing I'd say there is the goal of engaging in that conflict process is education and, and so they can learn. And if the process is no longer educational and right. it's just butting heads and no one's really getting anything out of it, that's the point where you just call it. Uh, yes, I did work it out with my roommate <laughs> first year. Um, we were never great friends, but we could exist together and do school, and we both graduated. So, <laughs> I will say often that's a conflict is the, I thought I was going to be best friends with my first roommate because my parents were, and they've told me all these great stories about their first year in college, and I'm not getting that. So sometimes it's that acceptance of, we might just have to learn to live well together even if we're not best friends, and that doesn't mean my college experience is less than someone who loves and adores their roommate. Um, that's a common thing, especially in, I was in Baldwin Jenkins for two years. That was one of my more common roommate conflict experiences. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right, I would say, again, mostly from a first year building, I would say about half are in that neutral range. I'm throwing out, this is not based on data, this is just experience and conversation. Um, maybe 30 or 40% in that we really get along and we're great friends. And then there's that five to 10% that just really, they can't stand each other. Maybe only one or 2% of that to the point where I need to switch rooms. The other where they're just gonna have to learn to compromise and live it out. And some of that comes from something happens in my first year that really changes who I am. I go through a hard experience. Something at home happens, that's so often the case. And I can't share that with the other roommate. Uh, this person just had a death in the family or divorce or all these things and they're acting differently, and it feels different now. And so there's a lot of different reasons why an unhappy roommate relationship might happen, but that's not that common. Even for first-year placement, actually more roommate conflict happens in sophomore year when you've chosen your roommate than when you're placed randomly. Because um, you think you know who you want to live with, and then you find out, we're good friends, but we are terrible roommates. Mm -hmm. And that's super common. That, and that happened to me not having a great first year roommate. We learned to live well together and we supported each other and we would have coffee maybe once every other week or something together and we lived well together. And then I thought, I made my best friend my freshman year and we are going to live together and what a perfect scenario to live with your best friend. And then you realize we actually live 
terribly together, you are the messiest person I've ever met. And it didn't work well. So we didn't live together junior year. And so uh, communication theories show that sometimes it's best not to live with your best friend ever. Um, (laughs) You might live with a good friend, live with someone that you live well with them. And that's a good space for you to exist and inhabit together. And you like each other and you support each other. But yeah, some people end their freshman year thinking, I'm going to live with my best friend. This is the best thing ever. And then it doesn't go well. Yes, that's ideal to me. I'm actually more nervous when roommates are best friends because that's more something could drop and it's going to change dramatically. Um, and boundaries get weird when you're be- if you spend all your time with one person and you live with them and you don't have an escape. It just it can be beautiful and there's roommates who are best friends that are so fun for me to work with, but they do make me a little bit more nervous, especially that sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Right, so the question is how to choose a roommate for going into the sophomore year. I would challenge them to look at other than who do I get along with, how do we live? So some of those questions you're asked on that form when you apply to Whitworth and get a roommate pairing, what am I a morning person or a night person? How do we study together? What boundaries are we going to have if we live together? Are we going to spend all of our time together or are we going to make sure we have groups of friends elsewhere where we can go and get a break because even and we all know this as adults right there's my favorite people I can't spend 100% I can't spend 100% of time with my husband I need a break from him once in a while Um, but we know that about ourselves and sophomores don't always have that awareness of but if I love them spending all my time together won't be a bad thing couldn't be a bad thing Uh, and it can so uh, it's okay to find someone you live well with that is a friend but maybe not your best friend They don't, but what we started doing last year, which I love, is that we let students essentially fill out a a more limited version of that form if they've said, I couldn't find a roommate or I'm not really sure where to start. I'm going to fill out this form and let Residence Life choose a roommate for me. And not a ton of students take us up on that, but those that do, it's more about would you live well together? And the expectation actually lessens a little bit from your first year being your best friend with that roommate and actually has seen some really successful roommate pairings. Yes, most do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. So the question is, if he's doing well, and to your knowledge, hasn't hit any of those kind of low moments so far as a student, how to prevent him from only from the extremes, I guess? Is that, that's a great question. Any thoughts? Yeah, I'd say challenge him to start thinking of how are you challenging yourself in this space? So you're comfortable, you like your roommate, you've got a handle on classes. Okay, have you challenged yourself to maybe step outside a little bit of your comfort zone now? So have you met with a faculty member? Have you developed that relationship yet? Have you joined a club? Have you explored maybe a different uh, group of people? So starting to ask them critical questions of like, 
sweet, you're in this good spot, you're doing well, you're starting to be comfortable. So now how can you start to challenge yourself a little bit um, and push yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone to start to experience some new things that you might try something and be like, nope, not for me. Or you might try something and then unlock this whole other interest and hobbies or group of friends that weren't there before that are going to have these new conversations that maybe haven't been in place. Yeah, I think I'd also say, um, at least for my own personal development, having moments of crisis were really important to me. Um, so not trying to create those for your student, obviously, but not being too afraid of letting your student go through some really tough times um, or take classes that really challenge their viewpoints. Um, I took a lot of classes that challenged my viewpoints a lot or my most difficult professors were usually my favorite because I felt like I was being stretched and learning so much. Um, so I think in addition to challenging, you want to challenge your students to the point where they're reaching those moments themselves and trying to figure out and wrestle with issues rather than avoiding all those. Right, and something I know from a first year building for a long time is we get a lot of what we call tight-knit friend groups. So these eight to 10 people spend all of their time together and it's sweet and fun and they really are enjoying college. That is fine and that is good. What often happens is Jan term. Jan term is the hardest term for, I think, first year students wouldn't say it's the hardest. As an RD of first year students, it's the hardest because you have all this extra time, so much time to think about everything. A lot of relationships start and end in Jan term. Uh, romantic relationships, that is. Uh, we also see students say, wow, I had these friends that I made out of necessity because I got to college and I wanted to find my friend group and I needed people to eat with in the dining hall and I, I made these necessity friends of eight to 10 of them, and they're great. I don't know if these are the people I wanna hitch my wagon to for all four years of college. And do I need to be in this group for everything? And the first conflicts start to happen, and oh, you're not who I thought you were. And I really, really encourage students to have two or three groups of students they consider friends, and those two or three groups don't need to be connected to each other. That is, to me, the ideal friendship group. So if one group is struggling through something, you have other support systems in place. So maybe that's my academic friends, so my major friends, and my living situation friends, and maybe a club or something like that. And those two or three friend groups help someone balance throughout four years, where just one group can make it, but often will encounter conflict that feels more dramatic because that's their only friend group. And unfortunately, for better or worse, first year communities often result in that because there's not the diversity of ages present to kind of give that wisdom naturally. But I would recommend that. So if you have this group, that's great. Who else are you gonna be friends with? What else are you gonna do? Yes. Sure. I think both. Um, I've had, I used to work in a gendered building, and one of my goals, weirdly, ended up being getting more men into that building to spend time there. I was with all women, because I was hearing some of my senior students say they didn't have any significant male friendships as seniors in college. And that was risky to me, going into the world that's not gonna be gendered, that they didn't know how to form those healthy, plutonic male friendships. So if you're noticing all or the other, I would be, maybe a little curious about that or questioning that. Uh, but typically students are naturally forming a couple. It, to me, it hasn't been significant if their closest friends are the same or opposite gender as them, whether or not they're successful. But if they only have one, that's more concerning.
That's a great question. Any other thoughts? Things you're curious about that your students experience during traditiation or? I don't think you have to ignore it, but asking questions is great. Hey, I'm listening to you, but not giving you an answer is always helpful. Uh, rhythms of communicating with home is also an important topic. So if your student is calling you every day, maybe that's a normal rhythm for you. I'm not trying to prescribe what's right or wrong. When it seems to be getting more frequent, that is often when they're in that homesick kind of culture shock stage and I want something that feels familiar and it's more comfortable to call home and talk to people I know that I don't have to pretend or figure out with than it is to engage in this awkwardness and this newness. So uh, I've encouraged students who are really struggling to engage with the community to set a rhythm of how often they're gonna talk to people from home, whether that's friends or family. Maybe you will do that once a week on Skype so you see them, you can look forward to that, but it's also pushing you to try and engage with people here, even if it's hard and uncomfortable. But it's, if you see a major increase in that, whether you talk every day and now it's twice or three times a day they're texting and calling, that might be an indicator that the culture shock is setting in and they're trying to get to what's familiar because that's safe. So pushing them to, to set a, a routine and not call you all the time. Um, and also recognizing when they stop calling for a little bit, they may be trying to figure out who they are and they're confused, and so calling home confuses them more. Um, so, sorry, there's a hand over here. Yeah, I'm with uh, our daughter's uh, program. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Right. Thank you for that. Bugs Bridge is a phenomenal program, mostly geared towards uh, underrepresented students or students from first generation situations. So they're the first in their family to go to college. It helps them orient to college in a way that some of the things that you might take for granted, they know they have to buy books for all of their classes. That's not part of the tuition. Uh, things that we might assume because we've gone to college or I've gone to college, some students don't come in knowing. So that program helps with some of those things, but also connecting those cultural differences and also gives that multiple friend group. So now I can go make friends in my new residence hall where not everyone participated in Bucksbridge. And I also have these people I met in this pre-orientation program. Yeah, that was a... I wish every student did a pre-orientation program, but what was the question over here? There was a hand. I was just wondering about the communication with parents, mm -hmm. how, how much it could challenge them and mm -hmm. how little it could challenge them. My mm -hmm. sister's quite a loner and she's mm -hmm. happier and sure. happier. Yeah. And um, I may have at some point said, I want to come to college. I want to live with dad. Sure. Mm -hmm. And to your point, it's a good time to wear his parents' 
<laughs> I will never say that. <laughs> right, so the question is, when, when is too much challenge? I think part of that is you know your child better than I could ever know your child, and that's always going to be true. If this seems normal for them, and they're not chick any of the other wellness wheel items, so their physical health, their mental health, their social, like, if social seems to be the only one to you that's off, but everything else seems to be going well, that's an indicator that what they're doing socially is probably enough for them. And they may just be more okay with one or two friends than maybe you would, or maybe I would. And it's hard to not put what you either experienced when you were a student or what you feel like is a social norm onto them. Uh, but it's really the, the shift. So if you notice they were hanging out with a lot of people and now they're not, or, uh, or the opposite, and it seems like, wow, they're also not physically healthy and they're really struggling in school and they've said some maybe mental, mental health concerning things, that's when, I mean, you can get us involved and let us know that, that's helpful. If you fill out an early alert form online as a parent and I get that, I can't tell you about what that conversation I have with your student is, but that helps me care for them to the best of my ability if I hear from mom or dad they used to be super engaged with this and now they're not and I don't know what to do, then I can have some good conversations with them too. Maybe it needs to come from someone else besides mom or dad. That's often the case as well. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So how much is too much, especially given the modern mm -hmm. assumption that being constantly connected is the norm. And I would go back to, I mean, students back in, you know, yesteryear when you didn't have cell phones and you had to wait in line in the, in the hallway for the phone. And you might do that once a week or every other week from what I've heard. This was not my experience as a student. <laughs> I think that was a good, once a week, I feel like it's just a really safe, good, normal, challenging, but I have something to look forward to balance. Again, different for every student. What we notice is a huge problem is social media comparison of what my friends who also went to different universities are experiencing. So I get nervous when someone's constantly texting friends from home or looking at social media from home, and then they start to talk about transferring to Eastern or to Wazoo or to, down to George Fox University or something because my friend over there is clearly having a better experience than I am here. Because social media is only showing me their highlight reel and not the hard things that I'm also experiencing at Whitworth. And so challenging that, I think, is good, the over-focus on how, how great my friends are doing that are at home or went somewhere else. That's a big thing that we talk about, especially fall break. That'll happen. They'll compare stories. Everyone will share, will share their best moments and not their hard moments. And then they'll think, I chose the wrong school. That connection can be really challenging. But I don't have a great answer for the texting I'm not a texter, so my students' ability to text a thousand times a day just blows my mind. Uh, but some of them, I'll be with them in a meeting and I'll watch their phone just probably 30 or 40 things in that half hour meeting. But I'm not here to judge how normal or not normal that is. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think one thing that I would add is it's, it might just take time for your student to figure out what their own rhythm is and how much they want to talk to you. Um, 
for myself, I realized this after the fact talking to my parents, but apparently I didn't really talk to them at all my first year. Um, I thought I was talking to them a lot. Apparently I wasn't. Um, but it, it equalized. I had to talk to my parents, find out what that rhythm was. When they said, hey, you haven't called in two weeks, and I thought, oh, I just talked to you. Um, but I had to figure that out for myself of how much do I want to talk to my parents how often does it work for me with my busy class schedule? How much do I want to keep those ties really strong to my home? And it just, it just took a while to equalize and find out how often. And I mean, now that I'm out of college, I don't have a set schedule for how often I call them. But you just kind of figured out that you settle into a sort of rhythm of figuring out what works for both of you. Yes? Sure. Yes, it's both. Right. Yes, and I have students who, uh, parent or guardian, will call us and say, "I haven't heard from them in four or five days. What's going on?" And we get the kind of, we have to balance the: is this a parent who's maybe overly concerned, or is this a student who's breaking a pattern and actually is concerning that they haven't called in four or five days? Because I have students who are both. I have students who need to call home once a day for a lot of different reasons, uh, <laughs> and it's important that they do that. So we work with both. It gets tricky where I can't tell you a lot about your student based on FERPA laws. So when you say, can you go find them and report back to me, I can't do that report back to you. But when you call concerned, I will go find them. You just have to trust that I'm doing that because I can't tell you. And I often will say, hey, call your mom. <laughs> they are worried about your mom or dad or someone is worried about you. I don't want to get another call from them about this, so please go call your mom. And most of the time, the embarrassment of that will force them to do it. Yes. Um, and I'll say email because we don't give out our phone numbers. But yes, uh, uh, I don't have too many of that. I got more of that in Baldwin Jenkins with all first-year students. But usually I have a few parents every semester that are concerned, and some for very, very valid reasons, and some maybe a little overly, overly concerned. But it's always okay to email your RD or the RD of your student. <laughs> I probably won't do that. I might remind them of dining hall hours or resources they have available to them. <laughs> there you go. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> Amazingly, yes, those are things we talk students through all the time. Uh, we are out of time. Is there one last question or yes in the back? Yes. Right. A lot of the things that maybe they didn't have to do at home. Yeah. And so now that they're here, mm -hmm. some of that, I mean, not only are they away from home, but now they're having to handle their own business. They're adults. Right. Or soon to be adults. Right. 18, 19 years old. And so I'm wondering if some of that is a part sure. of Always, yes, and we know that, and we are trying to balance the help we give to a first-year student who's asking for some of those basic needs and the help we give to a senior and saying, hey, you're new, Spokane is new, let's 
talk about bus passes and how those work. All of your students have bus passes now, which is awesome, so they can access Spokane. Let's talk about health and maintaining your hygiene. We did a hygiene prime time recently. About You've never had to buy your own soap and deodorant and all those things before, so you might not, not think about that. And then the senior student, hey, you can do this. I know you're capable of this. You've done it for a few years. I'm going to push them a little bit harder because I need them to be ready to go out into the world next year and not have someone asking them about this all the time. So we, we gauge the challenge that, that student needs based on how much experience they've had. But we are gentle and kind communicators, and there's no judgment of, this is a really stupid question, but how am I supposed to find how to get my hair cut? I don't know how to do that. Yeah, that's totally fine. We'll help you do that. Great. Well, thank you so much. If you have any other questions, I'm going to stick around for a little bit. Um, and I don't know about my colleagues here. So till about four, and we'd love to talk to you. But enjoy the rest of your weekend and seeing your, your children.